Hi there. <laughs> Welcome. Oh, I'm giggling. Welcome to a new dishcast. What's it, what's it been like? Well, to give you a little update on the puppy news, Truman is doing incredibly well, actually. And just a little bit of peeing. Whoops. And a little bit of potty training questions and a little bit of biting. He's a biter. I think he might be. I think I'm, I just sent off for DNA test. But I think he's probably got a bit of corgi in him because he's kind of, he nips at your ankles if you're not careful. He's kind of herding, herding the homosexuals in my apartment diligently. <laughs> but he's quite lovely and incredibly affectionate, quite quiet. He came today. He was off the leash and came to his name, which is a huge plus. So we're, we're getting along. He's, he's an absolutely lovely dog. And I'm really grateful that he's come into my life and cheered me up. I'm also grateful that we have an amazing roster of guests coming up. We just added Richard Dawkins, who's coming in. We'll talk about all sorts of uncontroversial things. Adam Moss, my boss, or former boss, former editor of New York Magazine, former editor of the New York Times Magazine, one of the greatest magazine editors of our time insofar as there are any magazine editors left. We also have George Will, who's coming in. Let's talk about conservatism. Abigail Schreier, who just did Joe Rogan, so she's really stepping down to come on this show. And we have Christian Wyman, a really, already recorded it. Um, I, think you'll, I think those of you who are interested in affairs of the soul and of eternity and of life and of despair and sickness and all the rest of it. It's a, it, was a, it was a really raw and interesting, and he's a brilliant man, discussion, and we'll be bringing that up at some point. But today, the word raw actually does come to mind reading this book. Um, Rob Henderson is here. He's a 34-year-old independent writer, and his work has been in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Boston Globe, plenty of other places, and he now writes a really great substack called Rob Henderson's Newsletter, brilliantly innovative title, and, and he had an unbelievably shitty childhood in foster care, um, pretty scary and intensely shitty adolescence, I would say, and then things have gotten slowly better after he joined the Air Force at 17, and then graduated from both Yale and Cambridge. Um, for which the story of which is just kind of a staggering, a staggering act of self-achievement and self-actualization. And the book that he wrote all this about, which I'm just kind of, I'm still kind of absorbing because it's 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 a, it's a really intense book. It it talks about stuff that's happening in America, that people on this podcast and many people we've had on this podcast care about but have never really had any direct uh, personal experience of. His book is called Troubled, a memoir of foster care, family, and social class. Rob, thanks for coming on the Dishcast. It's really, we met, right, we met at the Substack party in London. That's right. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Great to be here. Yeah, that was a couple of months ago, Substack gathering in London. And, uh, you know, I've been reading your work for years, but uh, yeah, that was the first time I ever got to meet you in person. What were you doing there in London? I, I, yeah. Well, I well, I got invited to that the Substack thing, but I'm still based in, in Cambridge. Cambridge. Yeah, I'm there on a, on a visa now. So I finished my PhD 
little over a year ago and stayed, you know, my, I, I like living in Cambridge. It's a beautiful little town, very oh quaint, it's beautiful. And my girlfriend, you know, we have an apartment there. We met in grad school and we she both English? kind of, uh, no, she, well, she's Malaysian Chinese, but she's been in the UK for, I want to say like a decade now. She did her undergrad. She's lived there for a long time. We met while we were, she was doing her master's. I was doing my PhD. And yeah, we just really like our little life there. And we probably won't stay long term, but for the foreseeable short term, we'll remain there. And who knows, next steps, probably back to the States. What do you, how have you enjoyed England? Just what's your impressions of that place? Obviously, you have a talk about this book, but mm. going to England immediately into Cambridge is <laughs> about as rarefied uh, an entry into, into English life as you could possibly get. Yeah, I, my, uh, observations. I don't know how... I, I didn't focus too much on on the British class system in the book, more so the American. I'm just more familiar with U.S. culture, of course. When I got to Cambridge, you know, I got there late 2018 when I started my program, and then the university shut down during right, the lockdown. So you've had a really weird yeah, it was experience. A we yeah, exactly. I didn't get the fully immersive experience that I had at Yale, for example. But I, I will say, and others have observed this too, that the class system in the U.K. is just much more out in the open People are less apologetic or you know, sensitive around it. I, I had this conversation actually recently with a Cambridge professor. I won't name names, but he and I were, and, and I don't think he would even mind, but I, I still shouldn't, <laughs> which is that he was telling me about these two postdocs in his department. And he was like, look, Rob, to, to be honest, with, I, can't, I can't do the accent. Can't, to be honest with you, they're not really going to make it, these two guys. They're, they're northerners. And I was like, what, what do you mean Northerners? And he's like, they're from the North. And, you know, and, and, and he was trying to explain to me. Later, I came to discover that there's this North-South divide. You know, I've lived there for years and I still hadn't fully understood this. But there's this North-South divide that I wasn't aware of where the North is, I guess, roughly considered the equivalent of flyover country in the U.S., and the South is where London is located, more metropolitan. And he was just very, you know, unapologetic and very open with, with his opinion when, like When this. I went to Oxford, this mm. is an awful th phrase they would use because there would be a bunch of people from state schools, often from the north of England, who were often in the hard sciences. They were known collectively as the northern chemists. <laughs> okay. It's <laughs> a horrible description of them. Have you, you seen Saltburn? Have you seen uh, I haven't it? seen it yet. Oh, it's you on my see, list, but I heard you got to see the, the beginning of it because mm. before you get to the country house and the felching of the bathtub, mm. you actually have a rather fascinating little slice of what it's like to be a kind of ordinary middle class boy mm. entering this upper class drama. Mm. Um, and. And I, 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 that's a bit like your experience at Yale, but we're getting way ahead of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And let's go back to the very beginning. Like, because if I were to describe you, I would get lost, really, in terms of your dads, plural, non-dads, moms, moms, lovers. I mean, it just, the people in your life that were in charge of you are just there's just so many of them and they 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 they're in such quick succession in so many ways that you almost need a Venn, you need a diagram to figure out who is bringing you up at which mm. time so let's just start from the very beginning mm. uh you were born when where yeah i was born los angeles december 1989 and i was born into poverty my birth mother and i you know by now i have this thick document full of reports from social workers and forensic psychologists and all the people who were involved in my case when I entered the foster care system in LA. And so now I have sort of detailed information 
Uh, my birth mother and I, we were initially homeless. Then we lived in a car. And then we settled in this slum apartment out in Westlake, this rundown part of L.A. in the early 90s. And you know, when I was three years old, my, you know, my birth mother, she was extremely neglectful, really severely addicted to drugs. What she drugs was, was she in? So, so there's no there's no information about this, but I, I asked you know people who were sort of involved in the foster system, most likely heroin, cocaine, sort of you know, hard drugs, and so my mother would have people visiting the apartment at all hours of the day and night, trading favors for drugs, and you know she had me this little three year old unwieldy boy around the apartment, and so she would tie me to a chair with a bathrobe belt. And this was her way of sort of containing me, and I would struggle to break free. And eventually, some neighbors overheard, you know, this young child screaming in this apartment, and they called the police. And they arrived and saw, you know, the sort of squalor that we were living in, and the neglect. And the police asked my mother where my father was. You know, they said, "Well, you're not in a position to care for him. Where's this boy's father?" And she said she didn't know. I've never met my father. My birth mother said that I was named after him, but she didn't know where he was or who he was or anything more about him. And so from there, I was taken into the Los Angeles foster care system at three years old and spent the next just shy of five years living in seven different foster homes all over LA. And and I describe and troubled the circumstances of the homes I lived in and the you know, the, the the system is overburdened. There are so many kids who need homes and not very many families who are providing space for them. And so some of these homes, I remember they had upwards of eight to 10 kids living in them where some of the, the, the bedrooms, there would be two bunk beds, two kids on the top bunk, two kids on the bottom, four kids to a room. And I just remember there was just a lot of sort of grime and a lot of dirt and a lot of squalor and you know, even in the best of circumstances, if you have a house with 10 kids, there's only so much you can do to keep some, you know, the place clean and supply the right amount of care for each kid. But there was a lot of turnover. So kids would constantly be coming and going different homes, some would be returned to their family of origin. Some of those kids would end up reappearing two weeks later because their mom relapsed. And then the kid just came back with us. And so it was this kind of extreme disorder and instability. What, What happened to your mom? So she was deported. Apparently, this was not the first run-in she'd had with law enforcement. And so she was returned back to South Korea, where she was from. She came to the U.S. from Seoul as a young woman to study and then started partying and, you know, getting into drugs. And I was born in L.A., and so I was a U.S. citizen, and I remained in the system in this holding pattern. So you still, you, you've never seen her again? I never seen, yeah, it's, yeah, that was, I was three years old. That was the last time I saw her. And I had, like I said, no information about my father. It was only in, yeah, it was about a year ago. I took this genetic ancestry test. It was a 23andMe. Just curious about, you know, the, that side of my family. And I discovered that my, I'm, I'm half Hispanic on my father's side. And I went, you know, my entire life not knowing this about myself. And so now what I tell people is, you know, I, I went to bed. Asian American, white adjacent, and then I woke up an underrepresented minority, <laughs> and I, you know, it would, it would have been nice actually to have that information, you know, back when I was applying for college and grad school, you know, that might have been useful, but that's, you know, that was completely new information for me. And, in these in yeah. these foster homes, 
did a did a dad emerge at some point? No, every single home I lived in, it was always a a woman who was the primary caregiver, foster mom, and I write about some of them in the book. You know, I I have sort of vague recollections, you know, their husbands, they had, you know, there was a a male figure in the house, but they were working or they were just, you know, uninvolved though with child rearing. I remember, you know, one of the homes I lived in, there the foster mom, she had her own children living there too. They were slightly older than me. And sometimes they would go off and, you know, hang out with their their father, but generally, yeah, it was just the foster moms who were responsible for care. And how long did that foster system go on until you actually met someone who you thought might be? Now there was a what Mrs. Martinez, right? Mm-hmm. She was a key key person in the foster foster care period. Tell yeah. tell me about tell us about Mrs. Martinez because <laughs> she's kind of a character. So yeah, this was an unusual foster home for me. The final home I lived in with Mrs. Martinez, as soon as I arrived I knew it was different because there were no other children in this home. And I remember seven years old wandering around this new house, this foster home. And right away I said, where are the other kids? Like, this is so different. You know, I'm used to this sort of, you know, this this crowd of small children, you know, making mischief and making messes and getting into trouble around the house. And, and you must have been used to a load of noise too, just yeah, general just endless. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the end, it was the man was endless. And then I get to this home, and it's very this kind of antiseptic, very clean, very sterile quality in this house. Everything was spotless. And Mrs. Martinez and my social worker, I asked where the kids, and they were, you know, Mrs. Martinez said, you know, we like things quiet, we like things clean, we only like to have one boy at a time. And then I later came to discover that, you know, I was there. You know, she had an agenda. She liked to have a one foster boy. Rough, you know, this this age group, seven, eight years old, to do chores around the house. So I would rake the leaves, I would clean the gutters, I would feed the dogs, I would pull weeds, just a lot of kind of menial tasks. You know, she had this small pool in the backyard and I would clean the pool. I was this seven-year-old pool boy, you know, and she, you know, I remember one time I asked her, why do I have to do all of this? And she said, you know, there are a lot of bad kids in this neighborhood and this is how we keep you out of trouble. And she wasn't wrong. There were a lot of bad kids in the neighborhood. And I did get into a bit of mischief with some of the other boys in this town. Um, I must say, Rob, hmm. having read this book and having met you before and seeing you now, it's hard to imagine the kid you were because you, you come off as this incredibly calm, reasoned, listeners can hear this. You were a crazy kid. You were violent. <laughs> you did every kind of drug imaginable. Mm. You you hung out with really bad characters, mm. and you knew all of this, and you continued this this kind of behavior. So, but with Mrs. Martinez, you weren't quite out. Of, it was only when you went to your your their next home in <clears throat> in in Northern California mm. that things began. You began to really act out. Yeah. But yeah. first of all, you found you got a parent. You actually had yeah. a parent. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, the Martinez home, that was a strange experience for me of, you know, doing all these chores and it was just a, you know, a unique yeah, she got a pet parrot at one point and I had to feed this bird that would, you know, attack me and scratch me and Yeah, she a pet parrot, Mr. Carlos, and she insisted I use that whole title, (laughs) Mr. Carlos, and I would sometimes just call the bird Carlos because it would infuriate her. She said, that's Mr. Carlos. Oh, okay. 
this is a, this is an indie yeah. movie waiting <laughs> to be made. And and that was the last home I lived in. I was adopted by this working class family. We settled in this town called Red Bluff in Northern California. It's located in Tehama County, one of the poorest counties in the state. It's a part of California people aren't really familiar with. You know, everyone knows LA, everyone knows San Francisco. But if you go two hours north of Sacramento, you know, kind of close to the Oregon border, that part of California is extremely sort of economically depressed, run down. Most of the adults don't have college degrees. There's a, I mean, now it's it's been wrecked by the opioid crisis. And it's kind of blue collar, mostly white working class. There's a large Hispanic population as well, especially for younger people. So, you know, the high school I went to was probably 60 to 70 percent white and around 30, 30 to 40 percent Hispanic. And, you know, there were a few black and Asian kids, too, but just really, you know, really poor, destitute community. That's true. Also, mm-hmm. all the way down mm-hmm. California, right? In the inner Central in, Valley. In the Central Valley. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. There are really two two states. Yeah. Yeah. And my adoptive family, they were working class. My adoptive father was a truck driver. My adoptive mom was an assistant social worker. And they were married. And they had a young daughter, their birth daughter, who became my adoptive sister. And, and they, her name? Uh, Hannah. Hannah. Yeah. My sister. Yeah. She And she and I became very close. We're still close to this day. You know, we just spoke, actually, a couple of days ago. Uh, and she finally, so she was reading chapters. She read, you know, parts of the book before where it was just her, but she read the whole story from start to finish the other day. And she called me and, yeah, she was crying. And, you know, it was, it was a really difficult conversation because she had never actually known the extent of my experience in foster care. And I didn't tell her. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to put that on other people. Had um, you been abused at any point? It was never, at least to my recollection, never outright physical or sexual abuse or anything like that. It was more so extreme neglect, which is actually the most common form of mistreatment for kids who end up in foster care and then who experience foster care is more so neglect. I do tell some instances of, you know, depending on how, you know, the definition of abuse of these experiences with Mrs. Martinez, where there was a period or a moment where I drowned in the pool in the backyard and she was very slow in taking her time and observing me as I was drowning before she decided to pull me out. Uh, yeah, that was a weird anecdote. So she sees you struggling. Mm-hmm. You're seven years old. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to swim. You didn't realize there was a deep end. Yeah. And she decides to let you kind of keep drowning for a bit to kind of mm-hmm. teach you a lesson. Yes, yes. Yeah, she told me twice when I entered the pool, don't go to that side. And she didn't explain why. And I'm seven and I'm kind of this impulsive boy. And so I'm like, hmm, what's, you know, what's over there? And I make my way there and kind of slip once I realize there's a deep end and I'm struggling. And she looks at me, she's on the phone and I can see her observing me and I'm shouting for help. And she, you know, kind of meanders and grabs the, the pool rake and extends it to me and then, you know, I'm coughing and I drank all of this chlorinated water. And she tells me, you know, if you, you know, the next time this happens, I'll just let you drink up the whole pool. And so she was, you know, that's that's the kind of treatment that I received from her. Did so, she ever show any affection? Yes, but only, only in moments where she was being observed by other adults. <laughs> yeah. You know, there was a, a, an anecdote I tell in the book about how you know, that one of my friends, his stepdad was walking the dog. They walked past us and, you know, she kind of tussled my hair and gave me a hug as he walked by. And 
you know, I, at the time I didn't really understand what was happening, but in hindsight, I recognized, you know, she wanted to have this Had image. anybody at that point in your life shown you, an, any adult shown you real love or affection? No. You know, I had a social worker, Jerry. Um, she was this middle-aged black woman who would check in on me and, and kind of take me to different homes and she would take me to in and out you know, this is LA and you now I, you know, and she would talk to me and she would ask, you know, kind of check in and see how things are going. And that was kind of the closest I. She seemed like a, a, a relatively cool character. But yeah. of course, when she, whenever she emerged, mm -hmm. you panicked because it meant, oh, yeah. I'm I'm going somewhere else now because she was kind of the harbinger of doom in that sense. Yeah. But why did you, I mean, you nonetheless, even though you are in these strange places, strange houses, you nonetheless want to stay in one place for for a period. You desperately want some kind of stability and continuity in your life. Yeah, I mean that's you know this is kind of a basic finding in developmental psychology. You know that kids want an attachment figure; they want a parental figure that they can rely on and connect with and depend on, and. Yeah, you know, it's and I and I never had that in every home that I lived in. I, at least for the first maybe two or three homes, I hoped it would be my last. Once I realized that this was how things were going to be, by the third home, the fourth home, the fifth home, I realized, oh, this is, you know, this is my life. And I'm, you know, by that point, actually, you know, when when I would see Jerry's car, I would start to, or I would, I would stop feeling so much anxiety and kind of grew to accept that this is how things would and it was yeah it, it was hard do you remember how you coped with that i mean like yeah. for example if you suddenly found out you were moving to a new house and you got to that new house and how would you what were your yeah. defensive mechanisms that you put in place to kind of feel okay well initially you know when i was really small three four five years old it was you know, I would respond with this overwhelming emotion, just this very intense despair. You know, I would cry. You know, I'd would, I'd would do the sort of the, the classic little kid tantrum of like, you know, just lose control of my body, forget to breathe because I'm crying so hard. Just, you know, desperately wanting to stay put in this place. And, you know, by the, you know, the third home, I, you know, and, and this wasn't like a conscious, calculated choice. It's just the body adapts to trauma and stress and I stopped feeling those feelings I just kind of shut down emotionally and became very numb and so I would go to the next home and I would just you know kind of accept it and you know I remember the first so the second home I moved in after the first home uh, it was very upsetting to be taken to the second home in the second home I was four years old and I remember I refused to eat for three days and you know at the time i wasn't fully aware of why I was doing this, you know, but, but in hindsight, what I was doing was I was, I was on a hundred hunger strike. And I thought that if I just stopped eating, that they would take me back to the other home. And, you know, not that the other home was any better. You know, they were both kind of but the it was same. familiar, right? But it was familiar. I knew the kids there. I knew the foster parents there and this new environment of people I've never seen in my life before. Um, what was the reason for you being turned over quite so often? Was it the foster parents had had too many kids or 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 well 
There's a there are a couple of reasons, but the the, the main reason is that typically what happens in with kids in foster care is that someone from their family of origin re-enters the picture and offers to care for the kid whether it's the you know the one of the parents sobers up or an aunt or a grandmother or someone offers to care for the kid and take them in but if a child stays with one family for too long this can create issues of loyalty and attachment and so if a child lives with a foster family for a year and then suddenly you know they're family member says oh i can take care of the kid and doesn't want to go because they've been attached and then also on the other side of that the foster parents are often reluctant to let the child go because they've become attached to the child and so the system is designed to prevent that from happening so the child moves to a different home every few months and someone you know this is this is a something that i think people could could focus on as far as you know reforms and policy improvements is just sort of more attentive care to tailor each approach to each specific child's case. So for someone like me, the reason why I was put into foster care, or the reason why I was put up for adoption in the first place is because at, at a certain point, you know, once you're in the system long enough for certain periods, you're required to see a psychiatrist just to sort of check in on the mental health of the kid in the, in, in the system. And this doctor looked at, like carefully looked at my case file and, and noticed, okay, so this child's mom has been deported. You know, there's no, you know, his, his father hasn't been identified. There's no hope for this child to be reunited with his family of origin. And so we need to put him in the adoption care system. And I described that in the book. But that should have happened when I was three. Mm. Someone should have recognized early on that mm. there was no hope of me being reunited with my mother or father or anyone else. And it was only because this one doctor happened to actually stop for a moment and read carefully and then tell the social worker his recommendation and and urged her to do this. And then I was adopted. But, you know, I spent f- five years sort of in this holding pattern in the system, changing homes, you know, every every few months. And in there the are a lot of kids like this. Critical years of development of right. your emotions, of your mind, of your body. Mm-hmm. What every developmental psychologist says are the crucial years. But anyway, you get to actually be adopted. How is that different hmm. a feeling than being in the foster home? Mm. At, at first, I wasn't entirely certain how different it would really be. You know, I, I guess people told me, oh, this is going to be your new mom and dad, Mrs. Martinez. You know, she explained this to me, but it didn't really sink in. So every foster home I lived in, at least as far back as I have sort of clear memories of interactions with foster parents, I would call them Mrs. So-and-so. And when the Henderson family came to visit me in L.A., when I was still in the home with Mrs. Martinez, they picked me up and we went to a local park and just talked. And at a certain point, I addressed my the person who became my adoptive mother. I addressed her as Mrs. Henderson. And she stopped and said, honey, you can call, you know, if you're comfortable with it, you can just call me mom. And and then I did. And I said, OK, mom. And as soon as I said it, I like the first time I'd ever said that and realized, oh, this is going to be a different kind of home. And you now I have a mom and I have a dad and I have a sister and be able to say those words and to not feel so much like an outsider, too. I remember at school, I would hear kids talk about, oh, my mom or my dad or my family and, you know, and then I would have to say, you know, oh, Mrs. Martinez is coming to pick me up. And that's that was my. So experience. how old were you when you were adopted? I was seven just before my eighth birthday. Yeah. 
And you, for the first time, you actually had a male figure in your life of authority who was taking care of you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How did that feel? It was, I mean, I had this mixed reaction to it. You know, I had spent, you know, years with these other foster kids with not a lot of attentive care. And so, you know, we'd get into trouble and mischief and, you know, teach each other swear words and teach each other to pickpocket. And my adoptive father, um, you know, he was kind of a strict man and he was fun too. I mean, you know, he was, he would be away during the week on his truck driving job. He took me with him. We drove to Montana and back to California, and I remember really enjoying this. And yeah, we—that's kind of a cool thing to do. Yeah, yeah, I, I really liked it. And this is in your yeah, school vacations? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, truck stops, and yeah, it was just what yeah. Did, what were truck yeah. stops like? <laughs> I mean, they're not too different from the way they are today—just trinkets and knickknacks and snack foods and uh, and biker yeah, dudes, biker dudes, and. Yeah, it's uh, all, you know, every once, you know, you see, yeah, during that trip, I don't recall this, but I do remember just being a kid and being sort of in an environment with lots of truck stops. You see the occasional streetwalker and, you know, people servicing the truck drivers for money or for drugs or what have you. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, when I was seven, I thought it was just a cool, cool place. Um, But he was also kind of a strict disciplinarian, you know, if I would swear or use the wrong word or get into trouble at school I'd get into fights at school sometimes and then he'd have me sit down and write sentences you know he wasn't physically abusive but he would have me you know write sentences or do push-ups or these kinds of you know penalties seems pretty good yeah that's what you that's what you needed I mean some kind of way right I think I think you know I at the time I didn't always like it and maybe you know maybe he went a little too far sometimes but I think overall his instincts were right that you know, because he he was concerned that, you know, OK, you have this seven year old boy who just came out of the foster system. He's going to need very tight rules and constraints and limitations and to know that there will be swift consequences. And I remember, you know, I, I didn't want to disappoint him. I wanted my dad to like me and I wanted to prove to him that I could be a good kid. And so my behavior actually did change and I actually did improve in school, got good grades all of those things. And, you know, I, and it wasn't really about the punishment that much. It was more so that I just wanted his approval. I wanted mm-hmm. this male father figure to like me and to. But he was already me. paying attention to you, which was a, a big improvement. Yes. But yeah. then what happened? So, about 18 months after the adoption, my birth mother, or my, my adoptive mother, adoptive father, this new family, you know, they sat my sister and I down and. They said that they were divorcing. And yeah, it was just really hard for me. You know, after you know, after all of the experiences in the foster homes and everything, I thought I'd finally had this stable family and then So it was just yeah. eighteen months later? Yeah, eighteen months. Yeah. Which so you is, just had the year and a half of yeah. some kind of yeah. sense of <clears throat> stable family and then yeah. once but again it's disrupted. It's uh, yeah, it, it so it's it's not objectively a long period of time but for me it was that was the longest i'd ever oh, been if with you're, a family if you're 8 years old 18 <laughs> yeah. months is a very long it's time it's an eternity and and every other family i'd lived with had been 6 months or less and so to be with a family for that long to not have changed schools that whole time everything and so when they separated it was hard and, you know, we man- managed, you know, at first it was I would stay, my sister and I would stay one week with my mom, one week with our dad. And then 
you know, one day my mom sits me down and says, you know, it's just going to be Hannah this week. You know, she's going to go and you're, you know, you're not going to be able to go this week. And then she later explained to me that my adoptive father, her ex was upset with her for divorcing him. It was her decision. And he, this was just his way of retaliating was to cut off contact with me to, you know, inflict a bit of harm on her, a bit of pain, and it was really hard. You know. So the first, okay. the first male authority figure who you trusted and you took an interest you and interested in you and helped discipline you, then chooses to cut you off to spite yeah. your adoptive mother. Yeah, yeah. Then something else happens. Then, <laughs> then you discover something else about your adoptive mother. This this story just goes on and on and on. It's like you can't catch a break. It's like one of these movies where you're just like, this can't happen. Anyway, so then 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 your mom tells you she's a lesbian. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. Why I not mean, throw that one in? <laughs> I mean, why not? Yeah, it was you know. So so you know, after my mom explained the situation with my adoptive father. Yeah, she raised me as a single mom for a period. I mean, it was a couple of months, really. We lived in this gloomy duplex, and there was this woman who would visit a lot named Shelly, and my mom introduced her as her friend, and she was over you know, almost every day. And you know, one day my mom explained to me that she was in love with this woman and that they were in a relationship and that, you know, that she was Did gay. Did your father know that she was gay? This is a totally... No, 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 no. I rem- so my mom, yeah, he didn't know until later. Was uh, Hannah her, their, yeah, their biological? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so why did they adopt? Do you uh, know? Yeah, so they wanted, my mom had always wanted another kid. She didn't want to un- go through another pregnancy. Okay. My adoptive father was, he was kind of on the fence, the idea of another child, but my adoptive mother convinced him, let's get another kid. And so he, it was never, he was never like fully enthusiastic about the idea in the first place, but... Yeah, and then after the divorce, he just completely lost interest. Mm. And then, yeah, uh, my mom and Shelly, they raised me together into my adolescence. And, yeah, Shelly was a great kind of stabilizing force during what those did, years. What did Shelly look like? She you was, actually don't give many yeah. physical descriptions of people. And yeah. It's, it's uh, I just kind of, I want to have a picture in my head mm. of what Shelly and your adoptive mom kind of looked like. How old yeah. were they when you, when, at yeah. this point? So my, let's see, my my mom, she was around 31, I think, when I was adopted. And so she was in her early 30s, Ooh. early mid-30s at this point. My adoptive father was, I think, 38. And Shelly was actually the same age, interestingly enough. So she was just, you know, just shy of 40. And my mom, yeah, early 30s when they first got together. And I was, yeah, nine years old by this point. And Shelly, yeah. So my mom, uh, my ad- adoptive mom. I mean, funny enough, she was also Korean. You know, full full ancestry. She was born in Seoul, but was adopted by a an American family in the early 1960s when she was two years old. So she came to the U.S. Uh, and was raised by my grandparents, her adoptive parents, uh, and they were you know white working class. They grew up very poor. Um, you know, my grandfather would tell me stories of the Depression and. You know, uh, so my mom, you know, despite appearing to be Korean American, she basically has like the habitus and outlook and mannerisms of a white working class person. 
And what about Shelly? And Shelly, so she came from kind of a poor working class background herself. She later, as an adult, once she had a family and she had these three daughters, she attended night classes and got a college degree that way. But, and yeah, she, she had like dark blonde hair. She was short. My mom was short and Shelly was actually shorter than her. You know, probably five, five foot one. At this point, were you bigger than either of them? When I was nine, I think I was about this. Yeah, actually, I might have been slightly. Probably taken off a little sooner. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, by the time I was, you know, hit puberty, yeah. But yeah, they were just kind of two, you know, at least to me, short-appearing women and very kind. And were you, were you teased elsewhere Mm. for having two moms? No, not really. So I didn't, you know, I didn't advertise it. Right. I had close friends who did know. I remember being nervous when I, yeah, nine, ten years old when. You know, I'd want to have friends come over to the house. And, you know, I had this friend Christian and he was the first friend I told. And I just felt safe telling him because his mom was essentially like an absentee parent. He didn't know who was, you know, well, he actually, he did know who his dad was. His dad had been in and out of prison. His mom was the single mom who just sort of smoked a lot of cigarettes and watched a lot of television and just didn't really take that much of an interest in his life. And I figured I'll tell him first because they're the least likely to be upset, I think, about this if they were to be upset. And they weren't. And then I told my other friends, and no, actually, interestingly enough, I don't think I don't recall a single instance of ever being made fun of or teased for any of this. Which is yeah, and and it's funny because this was you know a kind of more conservative part of California of the country in the late '90s, early 2000s, and casual homophobia was rampant. There were a lot of jokes. People would still say the f word for fun for you know just as a casual gay was still used as a slur or like a synonym for bad oh that's so gay like kids would say that all the time but then you know upon seeing actual gay people and meeting my mom and meeting Shelly I don't remember anyone actually being so then you you begin to feel like you have some kind of stability again Hmm. and then what happens (laughs) <laughs> I just feel I, yeah. it's this to hold on to your seats, listeners, because yeah. it's just one shitty thing after another. <laughs> so, so tell us the tell us Hi about there. the night of the shooting. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe.